Well, as you've no doubt noticed, the theme of this conference is keep your kids. Uh, my talk is standing on the promises, and I want to get to the promises in the second half of the talk, but I want to talk about the situation we find ourselves in uh, first. So the, the theme of the conference is keep your kids, and the motive for us wanting to do this, wanting to keep our kids, should be plain to everybody, and scripture recognizes the reality of such parental concern. Such parental concern is a constant. In Luke 15, 20, it says, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So, of course, if we love our children, and, of course, if we believe that salvation is the ultimate individual good for any person, then, then of course, also we want that blessing for our children. How could, we, how could we love our children and not want them to have that ultimate blessing, particularly when the only alternative to that ultimate blessing is ultimate misery? You can't love someone and not care about that. You can't love someone and not be invested in their ultimate final destination. So we can't love our children unless we want that salvation. So it makes sense why we want it. It makes sense why we want it. But is it in any way presumptuous that we want it? So we, it makes sense to us on a common earthly human level that this is something we want, this is something we desire, this is something we pray for. But uh, do we have anything to go on other than our own desires? One of the things, one of the subtexts that you've probably picked up uh, through uh, the course of the conference thus far is that our feelings are not king. Our feelings are not the sovereign lord of the universe. Our feelings are not what determines ultimate right and wrong. So we feel this desire for our children to be saved, but is it more than a feeling? Is it more than simply an emotional state? Uh, are we sentimentalists if we want the salvation of our children, if we want the salvation of our grandchildren and so on? So I want to address the question of whether, we, given the desire, given the fact that we desire this uh, outcome, are we being in any way presumptuous by desiring it? And how do, we, how do we adjust, how do we guard ourselves? How do we prevent ourselves from, from becoming sentimentalists and becoming presumptuous in our sentiments? So I want to start with some bad news first. Don't worry about it, I'm, I'm going to. The talk is post-millennial. <laughs> but I do want to start, post-millennialism does not mean kidding yourself. Um, post-millennialism does not mean that you have to view everything through rose-colored glasses. Things are in the culture surrounding us, the, the, uh, the culture into, into which you are introducing your children, the culture in which your grandchildren are growing up is demented. It's messed up. And you're saying, why, you know, why would I do that? You know, why would we send these kids out um, in, into a world like that? Well, we want to be like our father. And Jesus sent us, sent us out as lambs among wolves. That's what Jesus does with us. That's what we need to be doing as well. So this is, this is the, the bad news start. And this bad news may explain, or the assumptions underneath the bad news may explain why you even came to this conference, why the theme, keep your kids, caught your attention. 
Quoting from one website that is citing a Pew Research survey, quote, the percentage of adults age 18 and older who describe themselves as Christians has dropped by nearly eight percentage points in just seven years, from 78.4% in an equally massive Pew Research survey in 2007 to 70.6% in 2014. Over the same period, the percentage of Americans who are religiously unaffiliated, describing themselves as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, has jumped more than six points from 16.1% to 22.8%. So, put another way, Americans are losing their faith. The Christian faith appears to be bleeding out. Americans are losing their faith, and that is, uh, let's put scare quotes around it, Christian America is losing its faith. The Christian faith appears to be bleeding out, and if our anecdotal evidence, if our anecdotal experiences with evangelical kids at state universities is anything to go by, we are in some places hemorrhaging. All right, in remarks on, on, on one of the more alarming studies, in his remarks on, on that uh, reality, a, a gent named uh, T.C. Pinckney reported to the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee the following. He said, quote, data from the Southern Baptist Convention indicates that they are currently losing 70 to 88% of their youth after their freshman year in college. 70% of teenagers involved in church youth groups stop attending church within two years of their high school graduation. So that was a report within the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical denomination in North America. So within two years, three quarters of young people are not attending church, they're dropping out uh, within two years of their graduation from high school. This, if accurate, this, if accurate, in, is not a slow glide downward, but is rather a plunge off a precipice with craggy rocks below. That, this is just really bad. But perhaps, and this is what I want to su suggest to you, perhaps we are victims of some sleight of hand. Perhaps we are being encouraged to doubt God and his word because of how the world has set up the parameters of the discussion. And I'm talking about the problem of Gallup Christians. The problem of Gallup Christians. Not Christians according to scripture, not Christians according to the Holy Spirit of God, not Christians according to our creeds and confessions, but Christians according to Gallup polling. One of the things that can be used, and this is, a, this is uh, obvious if you look straight at it and subtle if you're not looking straight at it, one of the things that can be used to discourage us is the diabolical stunt of comparing the promises, the promises that God delivers to his regenerate, faithful, church-attending, Bible-reading, and, and believing saints, and holding those promises up next to the results obtained by what we might call Gallup Christians, people who think they might have had a religious experience at youth camp once, associated vagely with having thrown a pine cone, pine cone into the Friday night bonfire, and who, because they live in a generically Christian country, 
clothe that experience in quasi-biblical language. Many who speak evangelicalese, that is, have you had a born-again experience, something like that. Many who speak evangelicalese are not actually in possession of the great and precious promises. They are actually representatives of what has been accurately called moral therapeutic deism. This, is, this was brought home to me many years ago when I was speaking at a conference together with Rob Rayburn, a PCA minister in Western Washington in Tacoma. In the course of one of my talks, I got to, I got to preaching, and in that talk, I, uh, I had fallen into what I now consider this trap, and referred to the co- I referred in my talk to the common chestnut that evangelicals get divorced at comparable or worse rates than non-believers do. You've, you've probably all heard that. Evangelicals get divorced at comparable or worse rates than non-believers do. As in saying something like about half of all these marriages end in divorce. So Rob took exception to my comment very, very graciously, and he mentioned the entirely different experience that he had had with those couples where he had performed the marriage ceremony. These were serious Christians, faithful in their church attendance, and who, not surprisingly, had other associated behaviors. Their divorce rate was minimal. That made me go, huh, you know, I think, huh. And so I came home and looked at the divorce rate of the folks where I had conducted the marriage ceremony. I did the same thing that Rob had done. And I can assure you that the sample size was adequate. (laughs) Sufficiently large. And as I recall, the divorce rate was somewhere south of 5%. Somewhere south of 5%. Now, the difference between half of all these marriages end in divorce and uh, 95% of them don't, that's statistically significant. And what we're talking about is me performing marriages for wedding ceremonies for people who were in our church community, who faithfully attended worship, who were um, counseled in biblical principles of marriage as they were uh, embarking on uh, their married life together. And, And surprise, the results were totally and completely different. We even, have a, we even have a contemporary proverb, you can call it a cliche if you want, contemporary proverb that highlights this particular sleight of hand. And so let us stop comparing apples to oranges. What happens when we look at the data in a more straightforward manner? So having given you the grim setup, I want to get into some Good news, but I want to give you some preliminary comments before getting into the the data. So I'm going to be giving you some data with some hope in it. But before that, let me preface these remarks with this important qualification. We have nothing of value except as a gift from God. And if what we have is a gift from God, then we must not boast in it as though it were our doing. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have, Paul says, that is not a gift? And if it's a gift, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Not only is such a boast a grasping after vainglory, but it's also a pretty good way to lose whatever blessing it was you were taking credit for. So we want 
we don't want to take credit for anything because we want to continue to enjoy it uh, if, it, if it is indeed um, a, a true blessing. At the same time, all right, so I, I, this is one of those things where a non-Christian would say, let me tell you about what, how we're doing, and the, the non-Christian would say, here's the good report, knock on wood, right? Uh, what I've just said is not the pious equivalent of knock on wood, but it's, look, we know that everything we have is, is, the, is the sheer, unmerited favor and grace of God. At the same time, it, it really would be presumptuous for a group of Christians, us, let's say, who weren't actually keeping their kids to hold a conference on how to keep your kids. That would be bad. So if you're, um, if you, if you're keeping your kids and you've fallen into the delusion that it was somehow your doing and not the grace of God, that's bad. But if you're holding seminars on how to do something that you don't know how to do, that's um, not only conceited but also uh, delusional. So we don't want to be holding a conference on how to keep your kids if we're not keeping our kids. So in the stats that I'm about to cite, keep in mind that if we only lose one kid out of 100, if we only lose one kid out of 100, that still remains a familial tragedy. That's a tragedy for someone. It's a tragedy for that kid. It's a tragedy for the family members who love that kid. And our response, if we want to be good shepherds, should be to go after that one. Matthew 18, 13, good shepherd loses one sheep, he leaves the 99, and he goes after the one. So we are shepherding the flock, after all, not massaging statistics. We're shepherding the flock, we're dealing with people. At the same time, having said that, at the same time, shepherds are expected to know the state of their flocks. Shepherds are expected to know the state of their flocks. Proverbs 27, 23 says this, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. And the role of a pastor includes giving an account. And giving, and giving an account, I'm going to go over this slowly, giving an account means counting. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 17 Hebrews 13, 17 says, speaking of the job of a pastor, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. Watch for your souls as they that must give an account, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. They that must give account. When you ask your accountant, whether this is the amount that you owe in taxes, you never want to hear the reply, more or less. <laughs> you'd, say, you'd say to your accountant, do it again. You know, I, want, I want an accountant who is familiar with decimal points. And Now, you as parents know this. You as parents know this. A good part of your excursions out, and out with the kids in public includes the ongoing discipline of counting constantly. One, two, three, four, where's the little britches? One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Sometimes you pick up an extra, you know? <laughs> and when you pick up an extra, you should know within five minutes that the numbers don't tally. So, 
These citations, I'm going to get into the, the data. I hope I've qualified it uh, to Sunday and back. Take these citations in that spirit. So number one, a CARDIS study was recently commissioned and is soon to be released in which graduates of ACCS schools, that's the Association of Classical and Christian Schools, the graduates of ACCS schools, classical Christian schools, part of our movement here, Logos School here was the flagship uh, uh, school that kicked off this movement. There's over, over 200 schools um, following this pattern now. There was a, this CARDIS survey was commissioned that was examining alums, graduates of ACCS schools. And they were compared on a wide range of issues to graduates of public schools, Catholic schools, evangelical Protestant schools, and homeschools. All right, so public schools, Catholic schools, evangelical Protestant schools, and homeschools. Now, I want to, uh, I'll touch on this again later, but it's important to note that they were comparing not the average graduate of a public school and the average graduate of ACCS. They were comparing the average confessing Christian graduate of a public school and the average confessing Christian of a, a ACCS school. So it's, it's a, this is a true, true apples to apples comparison. The issues addressed by the questions included political views, continuance in their religion, sexual and marriage issues, trust in institutions, volunteer work, and satisfaction with their high school experience. Consistently and across a wide range of issues, I'm gonna give you some samples in a, in a minute. Consistently and across a wide range of issues, ACCS students were in the forefront. Look for, you can look for many more details when that study is released as it should be by the ACCS conference this summer. The study was conducted by the University of Notre Dame it examined alumni ages 25 to 42. It was statistically validated and it compared confessing Christians to confessing Christians, i.e. it does not compare Christians with non-believers. And it had controls that adjusted for family backgrounds. Now, while the details are not yet public, I can't release the, the entire survey or the details of the survey, I am authorized to tell you this much. Quote, the data show that ACCS graduates are 10 times more likely, 10 times more likely to attend church regularly than Christians of a similar background who attended other types of schools, 10 times more likely. They're 14 times more likely to send their own children to Christian school. And the divorce rate and rate of living together without being married is considerably lower than Christians and other types of schools. In fact, it's so low that it's statistically near zero. So that's one thing, the Cardiff study uh, to be released by this summer. Number two, the presiding minister of our denomination, the CREC, uh, Virgil Hurt, who's here somewhere, recently conducted a survey of all our congregations. One of the common emphases in our churches is the emphasis on covenant succession. It's a, there's a strong emphasis on covenant succession. The hope grounded in scripture, that I'm going to get to uh, in just a moment, the hope grounded in scripture that our children and children's children will love and serve the Lord Jesus. The churches reported, 
All, the, all our churches reported on their adult children, here's the parameter, these are the parameters set up, on their adult children aged 20 and above who had grown up in a CREC church and had spent 10 or more years growing up there. In other words, not someone who had spent six months in a CREC church, but someone who had sp spent 10 or more years growing up in a CREC church and was now older than 20 years old. The churches that reported made up about 89% of our domestic congregations. We have some international congregations, but 89% um, of our domestic congregations reported out. And the replies covered 1,246 children, now adults. Of those children, 1,131 are still in the Christian faith, or about 91%. 91%. Third, since 2012, I've been conducting a pastoral visit with all the high school students, all the high school seniors in our congregation when they graduate, whether from Logos School or from Homeschool, etc. Virtually all the kids I interview, 98, 99% of them, are graduating from a Christian program of education. Our elders recently did a review of all those kids in that category. We went back to 2012, which is when we, as far back as our records go of these pastoral visits, and our elders did a review of all the kids in that category, there were 83 of them, and determined that at least 73 of them are still walking with the Lord. That's 88%, and it should be noted that it's likely that of the 10 we didn't count, most are still professing Christians. We didn't count them because we simply weren't able to confirm it for sure. At the same time, apart from, this, apart from this particular list, we have had a few excommunications of young people who were, not walking, who were not walking faithfully. But remember that discipline is also part of this larger picture. If you have discipline for adult members and no discipline for kids that are growing up in the covenant, then what you're saying is that the kids growing up in the covenant, for all intents and purposes, have AIDS. They, they, they don't, there's no way to fight off infection. Uh, Church discipline, familial discipline, uh, firm discipline is an immune system. And if you have no immune system, then you're going to have large, uh, a large number of casualties. Uh, and that's incidentally, when you go back to uh, the, uh, the grim news, one of the reasons why we are hemorrhaging our, our children is because we don't love them enough to discipline. We don't love them enough to to say, no, you may, not, uh, you may not go there, you may not do that. Next, Logos School, which is the ACCS school here in Moscow locally, is approaching 40 years of operation and currently has 441 students enrolled. That's the current enrollment. Out of that student body, 111 of them are children of alums. Another way of putting this is that, is that the, these children are carrying on what their parents received when they were children. The, parent, the parents are invested enough in the education they received to want to make sure that their children are receiving the same education. Then last, last data point here, New St. Andrews College recently did a comprehensive survey of its alums. This is what shepherds do. Shepherds count. Right? They, they, if, they lose, if they lose one of the 100 sheep, they should know, right? 
New St. Andrews College recently did a comprehensive survey of its alums. Out of the 250 who responded, you know, chasing graduates of a college down and getting them to respond is a challenge, but out of the 250 who responded to this survey, three of them appear to have fallen away from church. And another three were involved in Eastern Orthodoxy. The rest were in evangelical or reformed churches. So 250 overwhelmingly are still walking with the Lord. Now the reason I say this, the reason I want to point to this is what the choices you make as a parent, the things you do as a parent, those things matter. It makes a difference. One of the problems with this Gallup Christianity business is that it makes us think that the whole thing is a crapshoot, you know, that you, you do what you ought to do and you put your kids in Christian school because that's, you know, it's the thing and, and you do everything you can do, but statistically, who, who can say? No, the choices you're making have an impact. It's not a crapshoot. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So why do we sometimes think otherwise? Why do we sometimes think otherwise? I think it's because we are being misled. We think that uh, there's a bait and switch that goes on where we say, uh, well, I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna be a diligent parent. I'm gonna pray with our kids and we're gonna be at church and we're gonna have, uh, we're gonna read the Bible at dinner time and the kids are gonna get a Christian education and we're gonna love the Lord and we're gonna do all these things. And then you look at some statistic um, cited on television about children falling away from church. Well, are they falling away from what you're providing? No, the answer is no. The answer is when, when you see kids who are falling away, oftentimes they're falling away, overwhelmingly they're falling away from uh, a very anemic, very anemic, uh, thinned out uh, form of the, of the Christian faith. And if you are bringing your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, if you're bringing them up in a robust environment where God the Father is worshiped and the Lord Jesus is praised and you walk in the spirit and you confess your sins to one another and the parents are, are correcting their children in humility, but with firmness the way that God requires. If, if, if you're doing what the Bible says to do, the promises that attach to that kind of behavior are good. They're sound. God's not a liar. So what does the Bible say? With all of that as um, preamble, what does the Bible say? There's a wealth of biblical information on this topic. There's a wealth of biblical material on this, and I'm only going to be able to touch on it here. For those who want to pursue it in more detail, there's much more in my book, Standing on the Promises, which is on the canon table. Standing on the Promises is a book-length treatment of this topic. What does the Bible say to parents who want to trust God for their children? Psalm 102, verse 28. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. So I've got three kids, I've got 17 grandkids. If you take it out 10, generation, 10 generations, we're probably talking about 300,000 people. State of Wyoming. 
<laughs> now there's a scary thought. <laughs> now, um, the children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. Well, my children have children and they're, they're gonna have children's children and my grandchildren are gonna have grandchildren and they're going to be as invested in their descendants, the people that are descended from them, as we are in our children and grandchildren. And my one, uh, one of the things I want to encourage you to start doing is thinking covenantally, where you, you pray and you work and you labor as though you cared about these descendants of yours 10 generations out that you won't meet until the resurrection. But you love them. How do you love them? How do you, how do you extend a helping hand to them? Your only point of contact with them is in your kids and your grandkids and the God who, who superintends all of it. So your, the children of your servants will continue. Their descendants will be established before you. God is interested in generations. Now, I'm gonna, I want to say something here that I touched on in the pre-conference. Uh, if you've heard this, you're, you're hearing it again. Paul says in Philippians, to hear the same thing is not a problem, no trouble for me. It's good for you. Uh, the Old Testament... If you, if you look at the Old Testament, you see a, a cycling, a recycling pattern of the people are delivered, the, the people uh, get into sin, they get into trouble, they cry out to the Lord, the Lord delivers them, they thank the Lord, they're very grateful for about 10 minutes, then they get into sin, and then you turn the page, and then they're apostatizing again. And you say, this cycle just goes and goes and goes and goes. And that's the book of Judges, all the way through the book of Judges. That's all the way through the, the history of, of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, many of these promises that I'm going to be citing are promises from the Old Testament. I want to emphasize to you that the Bible is not the kind of book where God in the Old Testament overpromises and then in the New Testament underdelivers. God does not overpromise and under underdeliver. God promises in the Old Covenant over and over and over again that your, the children of your servants will continue. He promises this in many different ways. The New Covenant is not, where God, is not the point where God says, oh, never mind. It says in Hebrews that, that, there was a, um, that the, the Old Covenant couldn't get the job done, but it says God found fault with the people. God found fault with the people. What the New Covenant is, is the time period within which, this is the time in which we live, the New Covenant is the time where all of these promises come to fruition. This is where God delivers on his promises. These are the, um, uh, Mary, the Lord's mother, quotes one of these passages that I'm not going to, uh, from Psalm 103, she quotes it in her Magnificat. She knows that this is the point, this is the point where uh, the, uh, God is fulfilling his word. God is fulfilling his promises. So the children of your servants will continue. This is a promise to parents that is based on the unchanging character of God. In the previous verses, the psalmist has said, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Who made the promise? The one of whom it can be said, you are the same. You don't change. Put another way, the one who made, the, who made this promise about the children of his servants is the one who never changes. And when we come to the time of the new covenant, 
This is where he unfolds what he was intending all along. He, he established the pattern of us stumbling. We stumble again, we stumble again, we stumble again, and then God finally fixes it in the new covenant, and all the promises start to come to fruition. Because God does not change over generations, he is in a position to sustain the descendants of his servants. But this is not merely a statement about God's abilities, what he could do if he wanted, but he probably doesn't. It's rather a promise concerning his intentions. These are promises concerning his intentions. We are not told in this place what God can do. We're being told what God will do. And this unchanging purpose is based squarely on his unchanging character. This intention of God's is also seen in the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5, 9 and 10 says, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. When God, when God visits iniquity to the third and fourth generation, he, that's... Um, that's a mercy. He's, he's setting bounds to the judgment. Um, he says, iniquity, the consequences of iniquity flow downhill three and four generations. But what flows downhill for thousands of generations? Thousands of generations. Well, mercy. Showing mercy to thousands. And just for point of reference, the history of the world, we haven't had a thousand generations yet. Right? We, we, the world's not that this old yet. The implication here is that blessings flow to thousands of generations. With regard to the blast radius of iniquity, he has spoken of three and four generations, and then he turns to speak of thousands. Thousands of what? The plain implication is that he means thousands of generations, and, but fortunately we don't need to rest on conjecture here or implications because Two chapters later in Deuteronomy 7, it says it explicitly. In the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, it just says thousands. It doesn't have the word generations. But in Deuteronomy 7, the word generations is there. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. But notice, the, uh, well, this is very important. When it says who love him and keep him his commandments, we're not talking about parental perfection because one of the things God does is he keeps covenant and what? Mercy. What is mercy needed for? Well, parental failures. We're not talking about parental perfection. More on that in a minute. This passage is just a few chapters after the Ten Commandments and it clearly echoes the language of the Decalogue. But two additional important features should be noted as well. First, it spells out God's intention of blessing for a thousand generations. Secondly, it says that this is the result of a faithful God keeping covenant with families. You are bringing up your children in the presence of God who keeps covenant and mercy. So when uh, John the Baptist's parents are introduced to us, we, we, we are told that they were blameless according to the law. They were blameless according to the law. And then in Philippians, Paul says that when, before he was converted, he was blameless according to the law, before the law. Uh, but in Philippians, it's very plain from the context that Paul was kidding himself uh, because he describes himself in the pastorals as an insolent man and a blasphemer. He was, he was a mess, right? 
Uh, so he was technically, pharisaically correct. He was blameless according to the law in that external kidding yourself sort of way. But John the Baptist's parents were blameless according to the law. They were sincere covenant members. But does that mean that they were sinless? No. You can be a faithful covenant member and still be a sinner because when, when, you are, when you are availing yourself of the means that are embedded in the covenant for dealing with your sin, right? The covenant had sacrifices for sin. When we sin, when we stumble as Christians, we know what to do. We, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness in 1 John 1, 9. When I, when I sin, when I stumble and I turn back to God for cleansing, I am, I am being blameless according to the covenant. I'm walking in terms of the covenant. I'm not blameless. If, it says in Psalms, if God were to mark iniquities, who could stand? You know, if God were to gun for you, he could, he could find some problems. But if when you stumble, when you fall into those problems, when you're struggling with those problems, if you're turning to God in Jesus' name, you are, you are availing yourselves of the terms of the covenant, the provisions of the covenant for just such people. So um, keeping covenant, God, God keeps covenant and mercy for thousands of generations, thousands of generations of parents who struggle with different things. Parents who have limitations that they're acutely aware of. God keeps covenant and mercy. Keeping covenant, therefore, is not a matter of parental perfection, but rather a matter of parental faith. The covenant concerns provisions for those things that we do that require mercy. All parental labors need to, have, need to be on the mercy seat. All, all, everything we do needs to be offered up to God, knowing our blind spots, our, our difficulties, our failures, and, but, but this is the key, do we believe God's promises? Are we clinging to God's promises? Are we looking to him to fulfill his promise? So the promises in the Old Testament, the, the, the prophecies, the, the promises of what's coming in the New Covenant, in the Christian aeon, are indeed glorious. Moreover, these promises are not silent on the subject of the children of Christians, the children of Christians. Here is something from Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 26. This is talking about the time of the new covenant. This is a prophecy of the time of the new covenant. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Ezekiel is prophesying about the time when David the Christ, who is the son of David, shall reign. Jesus is, in his, Jesus is on the throne of David now. Notice how this is a prophecy of a great expansion of generational blessings. When Christ reigns, whom shall he rule? He shall rule them, their children, and their grandchildren, and he will do it forever. Not only do these blessings cross generational lines, they do so again on the basis of an everlasting covenant. 
In other words, Ezekiel predicts that in the gospel era, children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be brought up in the Lord. Note that this is not something that might or might not happen. God promises that it will happen, and I believe if we look around at the at the growth of Christendom, if we look around at how the church is expanding through the world, I think we can see that it's, it is happening. It's beginning to happen. We see it happening. We don't see it. If the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a little leaven that's put in the loaf. And you, the, when the promises come to their fr- fruition, when the new covenant is inaugurated at Pentecost, we see the leaven put in the loaf, and the leaven works through the loaf gradually. The kingdom of God arrives like a mustard seed growing up into a big plant. The kingdom of God is like leaven put in the loaf that slowly permeates the loaf. The kingdom of God does not arrive like the 82nd airborne. It doesn't, it's not like Jesus died, went up to heaven, and then all of a sudden, ta-da, the kingdom of heaven has arrived in all its glory. It's, uh, the, the Bible, the living water flows out over the threshold of Ezekiel's temple, and it's just barely enough to get your shoes wet there outside Ezekiel's temple, but then it's ankle deep, and then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep, and then it inundates the world. The earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we can see it beginning to take shape. If we, if we rest in Scripture first and look at what's happening in the world, we don't see it all happening. We don't see it in its completed glory yet, but we can see enough. We should be able to see enough. We should be able to see enough to be greatly encouraged Think, think for a minute, and you say, well, I don't know, these are dark days, these are bad days. You know, I don't, I don't know. Well, okay, you think these are dark days? How about the dark night outside Abraham's tent when God says, let's come, come, Abraham, come outside. Look at those stars. Now, what did Abraham have to go on at that time from the newspapers? From the newspapers. What, what did the uh, Ur of the Chaldees, the, the, the Ur Gazette, What was, what was MSNBC in Ur like? Well, there was this total pagan darkness. Right? This is pagan darkness. And, and Abraham looked at the night sky, and God said to him, so shall your descendants be. So shall your descendants be. And Abraham did what? He believed God. And then what? It was credited to him for righteousness. It's not through law that we inherit the, uh, inherit the world, Paul says in Romans 4. It's not through law that we inherit the world, but through the righteousness of faith. We believe. We believe God's promises. This is also predicted in Isaiah's great millennial prophecy. Notice how Isaiah speaks of this. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a, for as the days of a tree... So shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the, they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. This is how the Bible talks. And if you just apply it to the Old Testament, then God's promises fell to the ground. If you apply it to the New Covenant, you see the New Covenant as the time when these promises start to bud and flourish. As a result of Christ's work on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, as a result of the completed work of Christ on the cross, his people shall no longer bring forth children for trouble. They and their descendants shall be the blessed of the Lord. Now, 
I want to address just, this is for the sake of intellectual and theological honesty. You may have been greatly encouraged by the overall general statistics or the data I reported to you. And these, these promises from the Old Testament, when you just look at them and you look at the words, should be enough to make your heart sing. You just, this is glorious. But we all know that you all came from churches back home, and we all know that there are dear families in those churches where they've got a wayward child. There's someone who, and you say, how can, I, how can I read this promise to them without appearing like I'm rubbing salt in the wound? And, and how do I know that I'm not going to be in their position one day? How, how can I glory in these things? When I see with my, I, I see counterexamples, I, I see counterexamples in my own experience. Keep it two things. Keep in mind, number one, the way the kingdom of the way God's promises come to fruition, the kingdom of God takes root and flourishes in the world gradually over time. And we can see enough to know what direction it's going. To quote Dylan, a prophet, one of your own, you don't need to be a weatherman to tell which way the wind is blowing. We, we know that the kingdom of God is taking root. We see it going in that direction. And you might say, but what about the, uh, what about the examples that don't seem to be an instance of this? How, the thing that we want to do is, we, we, the thing we don't want to do is be intellectually dishonest with these things. We, ought to, we need to uh, recognize that we need to face the facts of what we're dealing with. And there are Christian families that long for the salvation of their children and maybe... Uh, a number of them have fallen away, or one has fallen away, and there's and there's and there's real heartache there. How do we how do we process that? So number one, remember how the kingdom of God grows and expands. Number two, there's the theological difficulty, and I think the theological difficulty runs parallel to the difficulty created by the promises that we find in Scripture with regard to answered prayer. There are two kinds of lawful prayer. One is submissive and conditional, and the other calls the shot beforehand. All right. One is submissive and conditional, the other calls the shot beforehand. And both are faithful forms of prayer. Uh, Matthew 26, 39, And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The prayer, so obviously to, prayer, to pray, not my will but thine be done, is a lawful way of praying because the Lord Jesus prayed that way in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's clearly a lawful way of praying. Having said that it's a lawful way of praying, you want to be careful not to use it as an all-purpose escape hatch so that you can feel good about never having any of your prayers ever answered about anything, anytime, anywhere. Because I always pray that little escape hatch. Lord, I pray for this and this and this, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy, thy will be done. That way I don't have to feel bad when nothing ever happens. And, or the other thing we do is we, if, we, if we pray specifically, we tend to, to resort to that escape hatch. And other people pray, they escape into a misty fog. God, in other words, they pray the kind of prayers that you, one could never figure out if the prayer was answered. Um, Lord, please bless America generically. And Aunt Millie, I like Aunt Millie, and would you please have good things happen to her, sort of. And more or less, you're the accountant, right? More or less. No, we, shouldn't, we should pray specifically, and we should be surrendered the, the way the Lord Jesus 
was surrendered. But there's the other kind of prayer. The other kind of prayer is uh, there, uh, John 14, uh, John 15, Jesus makes an astonishing promise there. And then in Mark 11, 24, here's a good one. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. There you go. And you say, well, I would like a freezer full of ice cream in the basement. As I desire it, whatever things, soever ye desire, when you pray, believe that you receive And all I've got to do is... I, I, I believe, I believe, I believe, and then you shall have them. Well, and then you say, well, that never, when I do that, that doesn't work. But then you read some, you know, some of the things that happened to George Mueller. You, you've had some striking answers to prayer in your own life, but it's not that way all the time, it, but it's, it's striking and, and it's just really amazing. But why doesn't happen? Why is it sometimes thy will be done and other times you pray, and you know how it sometimes is. You're at a basketball game, and the clock's running down. There's 10 seconds, and someone launches the ball for a buzzer-beater shot from three-quarters court. And as soon as the ball leaves the person's hands, you know that it's going in. Have you ever had anything like that happen, where you just called the shot? You, this is happening because this is how the story has to go. This is how the story has to go. It's all building up to this. Well, there are times like that in your prayers, but there's two kinds of two kinds of praying. The catalyst is faith, not striving, not gritting your teeth and striving hard, but the catalyst is faith, not faith generally, but specific faith, faith for this. So when you're, when you find yourself, just, you know that it's going to happen. You pray and you know, don't fight that, right? Don't fight that. If you, if God has given you this knowledge to call the shot, these, these passages, John 14, John 15, uh, Mark 11, these passages are in the Bible for a reason. They're not in the Bible, clearly, from the Lord's uh, prayer in Gethsemane. They're not there so that we may apply it to every time we pray, but it should apply to some of the times we pray. Right? And the catalyst is faith, when God gives you the faith to believe these, uh, to believe these promises. And at a bare minimum, this is something we should yearn for. We should seek for it, ask for it, long for it, and from beginning to end, we must remember that none of this is on account of our works. Our works with our children may well be instruments in the hand of God for, certainly God for certain godly outcomes with our kids, as our faith is also an instrument. But the ground of every good thing that might come our way, including this one, is the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus. So, you have a situation where um, two sets of parents are praying for their kids, and one set of parents, it, it doesn't, the, their kids are all walking with the Lord and everything's happy and harmonious and, and people want to, what did you do? As though, you know, if we, can we twiddle the knobs and make it come out uh, this way? No, it's by grace through faith and we've been, and how, how, how is it that your kids turned out? How is it that your grandkids are walking with the Lord? How, how, how did you do that? Well, number one, <laughs> I didn't do that. You see that? This is not something that parents do. This is not something parents do. Parents are instruments in the hands of God for doing what, what he does. And my job is to trust him. My job is to, is to read the Bible, be aware of these promises, and be looking to God to give me the faith for these, for these promises. But when you're in the trenches, I'll just conclude with this. When you're in the trenches and your, your, your kids are in the you know, yard ape um, 
uh, stage and they're running around and having a good time and, and you're overwhelmed with the laundry and you're overwhelmed with the dishes and you're overwhelmed with the homeschooling and you're overwhelmed with doing the assignments for the school, you know, the, and, you, and, say, and you go to your husband and say, how do we know, you know, ah, my children are all going to be uh, heathens. And he said, well, honey, where, where did this come from? She said, come to the back window, look out in the backyard. <laughs> heathens, heathens. <laughs> Dad should encourage mom by saying something like, this is not going to come out, this is not going to turn out well because we have our act together. We are, we are not going to earn the salvation of our children. They can't earn their salvation. We can't earn their salvation. What we can do is we can trust God for this. We're going to surrender this. And if you're trusting God for it, you're not going to be uptight in the, in the wound tight sort of way that some Christian parents have of making their kids feel like they're walking through a spiritual minefield. Because if you're wound tight, works are, are frustrating. Works are constantly frustrating. Trust God. Let it go. Give your kids to God. When you, um, if you, if you dedicate your, if you come from a, a church where your children are dedicated to the Lord, or in our uh, church we baptize infants, what you're doing when you baptize an infant is you're surrendering the whole thing to God. This is God's business. It's God's business to save us. And it's our business to be instruments available and ready for him to use in this. And the most equipped, prepared, well-tuned instrument for this is a trusting instrument. It's a trusting instrument where you're not laboring and striving as though it were something that you have to do. So the ground of every good thing that might come our way, including this one, the salvation of our children, the salvation of our grandchildren, the ground of all that is the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, and amen. Our Father and God, we thank you for your goodness, the goodness of your word. I pray that you'd help us to understand these things. There's some difficult things in it. I pray you'd help us as we work through it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.